Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Thank you, everyone. Today we have Stephen Maynard Caliendo, professor of political science at North Central College and my former professor. So he's the one that taught me what I needed to learn from political science. And I hope I'm not a bad reflection of you <laughs> in this conversation. I mean, no, if anything, I hope I hope it doesn't sound condescending, but I'm very proud of you. I think yeah, you've done great. I'm uh, glad to have you out there doing all that you're doing. I'm very proud. Thank you. Well, I wanted to ask you to come on and and uh, share your research, your knowledge, your expertise. Um, there's so much going on with COVID-19 and the resurgence of the pandemic and how much that's influenced our daily lives, how much that's um, forced us to think about uh, what what we can do economically, politically, but also we have the Black Lives Matter and the whole social justice component going on that, you know, allows us to examine our identities and figure out how we fit and what we can do in this world. And a lot of this, you know, these are such broad topics and concepts. So I wanted to narrow it down and, and really focus on the political science aspect of it and understand from your perspective what are your thoughts on everything that's going on and how are you doing, right? Like, so, so let's start with how are you doing so far? You're trying to ask, um, you know, I think I, I'd be lying if I said I'm just fine. Uh, I think everybody's struggling in different ways. Uh, it's also not steady uh, there. You catch me on different days. I might give you a little bit of a different answer. Um, you know, in addition to, to being a political science professor, or really instead of, for the most part now, I'm, I'm dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at North Central College, and that's really yeah. uh, my full-time job. And I, I still retain the title of professor, and I teach one course a year, um, but it's not the same as when moving you were- Moving on up, moving on up. Well, no, no, it's moving. I don't know up. <laughs> it, it, on an organizational chart, uh, it does look like it's a vertical move, but it really is a different kind of move. Um, I, I'm responsible for 16 departments, um, really the vast majority of, of, of the college, which is a, a real an honor uh, to be able to represent the faculty in all of those areas as diverse as uh, theater and music to chemistry and engineering um, and everything in between the social sciences and the humanities. And it's so, um, I learned so much and, and uh, we have, I don't have to tell you about the talent on the faculty at North Central College. It's a real privilege to represent them mm -hmm. and to help lead as well as I can. But it, but it changed this is my fifth year being Dean and it's changed my rhythm of life. It's been five years already. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Five years, 2016, I was named Dean. So this is my fifth year. Yeah. Yeah. Just the things I worry about are different. The things I think about on a daily basis, my, my day to day was a long day uh, and in the summertime and um, it was full of a lot of really unique stuff, but not a lot of political science. Although I am putting the last touches on an edited volume uh, yeah. that will come out in, in, in the end of the year. So I am doing a little political science in there, but I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I'm good. It's just uh, that it's a roller coaster ride. And I think it's um, important for everybody to be honest about, about where they are in that. 
Mm -hmm. And how are you able to manage both roles? So right now you have the leadership position at the school uh, and at, as a dean and as a, as a, a leader of the school, you're, you're really looked at for answers and looked at for guidance during COVID-19. What's the policy? What's going on? What's the oh. future? And a lot of this, you don't know. None of us know. How are you able to um, continue on? What do you do when you don't know the answers? And how do you share that with other people who are also asking the same questions? That's you know that's a wonderful question and and I learned very early on even before I had any leadership positions that vulnerability is not a weakness it's really an asset and I think as a one of the benefit there's many benefits to being in higher education as a profession and the tenure process affords that level of vulnerability I mean I can say to a class I don't know that you know and I don't have to worry about posturing and worry about well yeah. if I don't know then well, I'm supposed to be the professor I'm going to lose my job that's not that's not the way higher education works as you remember it's a very interactive process and students mm -hmm. teach professors as professors teach students and uh, certainly there's core competencies and knowledge bases I have a PhD so I hope I know more than undergraduates do yeah. about political science but on a day-to-day -day, um, interactions you, you have room to grow there and that served me well in my position as Dean uh, to, to, to say, I think you, if you ask my, the faculty in the College of Arts and Sciences about me, they'd say that I'm humble, I'm humble and I'm honest and that I do my best uh, to know. But when I don't, I say I don't know, but that, you can't stop there. You have to find out. You have to figure out a way uh, to, uh, to get the answers to solve. In, in this case, so much is out of our control. Mm -hmm. And the, I'm only one very small piece of a very large institutional team that has been working to figure out how do we deal in the immediate sense with, with what's happening, but also plan for the fall semester. And of course, that's what most people are thinking about, um, students coming to college or coming back from college. And there were, there were over 100 people, faculty and staff, who comprised sub-teams of a group that were responsible for looking at every aspect. I mean, we think about class first, because you think about college, you think about classes. Mm -hmm. But we have athletics, and we have the music ensembles, and we have the theater productions, and we have the dormitories, and we have the eating. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's just so much about college life um, that is more than... Uh, the classroom and all of it had to be examined. And uh, I feel very confident that we have good plans in place and contingency plans. And I also feel no, I wouldn't be surprised that if in seven days it all changes. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's all moving so quickly. So are you guys doing in person during in the fall? We're going to do um, in person where we can, where it's safe. And in, uh, in some places it will not be safe. It won't be safe because the, the professor um, is in a vulnerable category or lives with somebody who is, in which yeah. case we're going to have that professor be remote. We will, so you know, social distance uh, to the extent that we can. But as you know, at North Central, um, one of the reasons you go to a small private school is for small classes. So we don't have big classrooms. We just don't have a lot of really big classrooms like the big public schools do. Where we can spread people out. So where we can, we'll use those big spaces and spread people out. Other times we might have to split a class in half. Mm -hmm. You might have a class of 30 and the professor will meet 15 of them on Tuesday and 15 of them on Thursday. And then the remainder of the work will be done online. You know, but it's, it's more complicated when you think about our choral groups, for instance. I mean, singing, it, you're spring, you know what I mean? You yep. can't sing the mask and you, you know, we can get the string ensemble in masks, but we certainly can't get the woodwinds in masks. You know what I mean? There's, there's just a lot of things that, that are going to have to take, you know, labs are a challenge, mm -hmm. uh, as you can imagine, uh, studio art uh, is a challenge. Some mm -hmm. of it's not. I mean, you can spread easels around eight feet apart and still have your painting and drawing classes, but there's other aspects of studio art that aren't going to be possible. So, you know, we're trying to think about computer labs, you know, keyboards are a nightmare. 
right? And so we're probably yeah. going to be removing all the keyboards and issuing keyboards to students for them to bring their own and, and plug in rather than touching other people or other people have touched. So we're getting creative. And what's your thoughts on this, right? Because I know even just your person from being your student, one of the major benefits of your class and others is that face-to-face connection and being able to debate and have the interpersonal feedback. Um, and I know virtual, we can kind of do that, but it's not the same. So I'd rather be sitting in a room with you. Yeah. Than doing this, that's for sure. Yeah. Are those plans just temporary until the, the phases end and then everything resumes as normal? Yeah, I mean, that's our that's our distinguishing feature. We're not going to become an online institution. There, there, we've had components. When you were there, there was no online presence at all. No. We have some components now. Uh, not not We don't have very many fully online undergraduate classes. We do have online graduate programs. But, but a lot of professors leverage technology in their traditional classes in different ways, flipping the classroom, for instance, putting their lectures online so that the time that we have together is more meaningful. We don't have to take time with a lecture, which is mostly unidirectional that you can watch a video of. Mm-hmm. Instead, have that whole hour to interact. So we've been doing things like that for some time. Um, and that will come back, you know, in, in its regular form, I think, once we, we move to a place where it's safe to do that. But for the time being, yeah, I think, um, you know, you never, there's never a good time for a pandemic, but thank goodness that the <laughs> technology is such that we can do this, that, mm-hmm. that I could have the face-to-face conversation with you or lots of folks, even 10 years ago, even five years ago, even though the technology was there to do it. The Wi-Fi was slower. You know what I mean? It's 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 really reliable now, and so we're making the most of of that uh, part of it. And look, and I'm an Italian kid from the East. I, I like to touch people, and you know, one of the things when you move into higher ed, you don't touch people anyway because that's a problem. Right. That's, that's, a, that's that's good. No, no, that's a no, no. But then they move to the Midwest, and you don't even touch other adults. You know what I mean? People <laughs> don't really touch you. I'm like touch. So this is uh, this is very difficult for me to not Where even. Where are you have- from? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah. 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 Proud from Pittsburgh. Um, but this is just hard not to be able to be in the same room as be, I miss my colleagues. I mean, some of them drive me crazy. They tell you too, but I miss that even, yeah. you know what Come I mean? Come drive it's, me uh, crazy. Come <laughs> drive me crazy. Um, you know, and, and just, just come in my office, even if you're complaining, but it's, you know, I don't know, it's human connection mm-hmm. and, um, there's, it's different over email. Um, I'm glad we have the video feature, but, um, um, I'm that, and so when you ask me how I am, and I, I, I didn't want to just say I'm okay, that's kind of it. I mean, besides trying to juggle little kids, I still have little kids at home too. And so there's all kinds of challenges, as you know, uh, with that. It, it's just an adjustment and we're all in it together. We're all in it together. Don't you hate that phrase though now? We're all in it together? Because I don't hate technically it. No. none of us are together right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, not physically together, but, in, but we're struggling with the same things. And so, yes. I, yeah, I kind of embracing that one. I don't know that I use it that often, but I, but I try to remember it, that, that I'm not the only one who feels this way. And yeah. I'm not the only one who's sad uh, that I can't be with my colleagues and my friends. And, I, um, and my, my, my kids can't go out to play with their friends the way they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does help me to know that there's a common struggle. And I'm also, I have to be honest, quite proud of what we've done in Chicago and what we've done in Northern Illinois generally to turn, to flatten the curve and to slow the spread and to do the things we were asked to do. Um, in my neighborhood, I live in downtown Chicago and my neighborhood, I would estimate it's still 80 to 85% of people wearing masks, you know, and, and the people that aren't are jogging and, you know, doing things that, you know, trying to stay away from, from folks, but just walking the dogs and stuff, everybody's still masked up, you know, mm-hmm. we're trying to do the right thing. And I see in other parts of the country, they're not. Nope. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm so sad that this has become politicized, that public health is politicized. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised about it, but it's disappointing. And then of course we see there what the results are in, in those areas now. 
they're, they're moving backwards. So, so let's talk about that. So public health being politicized and COVID-19 being immersed in, in not only the news, but on every social media page. Even Twitter has its own COVID-19 alert system. Websites have their own COVID-19 pages. Businesses are sending out their own COVID-19. And some of this is, is important and informational. So we want to know what's going on and how it's affecting us and, and the different components and areas. But how is it more politicized than maybe it, it should be? And what should we be mindful of as a general public who you know, are not as privy to the ways that it's infiltrating our attention, I guess? Right. Yeah, I mean, as, as somebody who, uh, I think you know, I spend a lot of time as a media analyst as well. I do political commentary for television and um, uh, I try to, I, I don't, I, I'm not interested in being neutral. I don't think that's my role, but to be objective is, is important and, and to try to make sure you're, I'm thinking from multiple perspectives and presenting it that way. In this case, though, is, is a little bit hard to do because it's not, you know, usually when th- something is politicized, it's fair to look at both sides and say both sides are politicizing it. This has been all one-sided. I mean, the science is there, you know, of, of the importance of wearing masks. And it's only been the president and his closest Republican allies. And many of them have peeled off in recent days, in fact, and saying that you should be wearing a mask. And so it really has become, you know, the, the, this sort of conservative notion of, of don't tread on me, that you're, you're infringing on my rights, requiring me to wear a mask, or even to suggest I should wear a mask. And that's unfortunate because it cuts against science. But we've seen a sort of an erosion of the belief of science uh, from this administration from the from the start, and um, certainly that's uh, accelerated by and amplified by AM talk radio and uh, certain cable news stations. And um, I think that's unfortunate, uh, moving away from science. Um, but in this case, it can be deadly. I mean, it's really a problem. And for me, the, the most interesting part about the mask is that it is it's not like a seatbelt. I mean, I'm hearing it, you know, compared to seatbelts, but it's it's almost the opposite of a seatbelt. The mask is not to protect yourself. A seatbelt, you know, we have seatbelt laws and you can get a ticket if you're not wearing a seatbelt, but really if you don't and you get into an accident, the only person that's hurt is you. You made the bad choice. Uh, and so some libertarians are opposed to seatbelt laws too, but we've come to accept those. But the mask is different. We're not asking you to wear a mask to protect yourself. We're asking you to wear a mask to protect everybody else. And so the fact that folks are pushing against this notion that I have any responsibility uh, for your well-being mm-hmm. is really disheartening. It's really disheartening, and it, it um, because it seems it's a small thing. It's not it's not a huge sacrifice we're asking people to make. Um, it, they're not comfortable. I don't love wearing a mask. You know, when I go outside, I always have one on. Dr. Fauci said early on, Anthony Fauci, I'm talking about uh, yeah. the, the the scientist who's sort of been out in the front of this publicly, that we all have to pretend uh, we like we have it. We have to pretend like we're infected. We have to act like we're infected in terms of what we touch and how we. And so I try to move about the world as if I'm carrying COVID nineteen. And if everybody did that, uh, we know that, the, that, that, that we'd have much better results. Uh, and so the refusal to do that is personally disheartening to me. So what do you say to the people who are Republicans who don't agree, who don't, who are saying that this is a step towards infringing on more rights, more violations, uh, and that there isn't the facts there to support the, the, the claim that the masks are actually working to a large degree? Uh, because the other side exists, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't argue with that part. If people don't believe scientists, then they're not going to believe scientists. There's nothing that a political scientist or a dean is going to tell them that's going to help them believe what a biologist or an immunologist is is, is the advice that they're giving us. But when you have a whole party, right, the whole Republican Party is supporting that, that side, 
Right. But I don't know that they're all supporting it because they think that the science is bad. Some of them are even accepting of the science and saying, I don't care. Well, right. That's that's my right to wear a mask. And, and, and And I think part of it is a misunderstanding about who the mask protects. I mean, because if it really was about only protecting themselves, you should wear a mask so you don't get COVID. It's harder to tell people, please don't wear a mask. Although you still should, because then you can infect somebody else who, you know what I mean? Like somebody who's more vulnerable. So you still would make the argument, but, but as it is, the mask is doing nothing to protect the person wearing the mask. That's not at all what's happening. And so it's, it's, uh, if, if they want to be honest and just say, I don't care. If I infect other people, that's sort of the price. It's important for me to be at this rally, to be at this bar. And let's not make it all about Republicans at Trump rallies. Right. We saw what's going on in Wrigleyville this weekend. I mean, it's horrible. Like long lines outside the bars in Wrigleyville. People, young people standing with no masks on in Chicago. Just as I'm bragging about Chicago, it's not all of us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know people are cooped up. I know, you know, the weather is hot and young people were ready to get out there and mix it up and look cute, and do the things that you do in the summertime in Chicago. And it stinks. I mean, we're going to miss a whole season. We're going to maybe miss a whole year. Mm-hmm. The, all the, the theaters are all closed. I mean, my thing's going to concerts. I go to concerts. I can't go. I haven't been to a live concert. I'm, <laughs> gonna go to a concert. Live, I'm not going to go to a live concert. Who knows when? They're all canceled. Yeah. Um, Joffrey Ballet canceled their whole fall season. And I know Nutcracker this year. What are you talking about? What are we doing? It's terrible. But mm-hmm. guess what? It's better than being dead. And it's right. better than somebody sick near you. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody doesn't have to believe that. Those are my, per- you know, I, I believe that. I wish more people believe that. But enough people do mm-hmm. that I think we've done a better job than expected. But worldwide, we haven't. I mean, I think a quarter of the, of the COVID-19 deaths worldwide are United States. And mm-hmm. that's like, if we think about the population distribution, that's not good, you know, for a, a fully developed wealthy nation, we should be doing better than that. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, social justice, race and, and, and equality, and um, wanting to understand if this is also being used during this election cycle, because part of me feels, am I being pawned again? Am I being used? Is there a trigger somewhere that because this <laughs> is a presidential year, yes. Yes. that this is all manipulated, orchestrated? I don't know what to think right now. Well, I'm proud of your intellectual curiosity and your level of skepticism. This is all very healthy, right? That you're thinking of it in that broader context. My, my wife, who's a clinical psychologist, has a very interesting uh, uh, hypothesis about this. And she thinks that um, despite, you know, we can say that, you know, that George Floyd video was so vivid that it would have been difficult for anybody to look the other way. And if you watch the whole thing and you listen to him calling for his mother, all those things are so heart wrenching that it's going to catch the world's attention. But, but her, her position has been that we, because we all had to slow down, stay in our house, pay attention as a result of COVID-19, that we right. were much more focused on not just George Floyd, but then the broader messages that started to emerge out of Black Lives Matter as a result of Breonna Taylor's death and George Floyd's death. And so, mm-hmm. and so that these, that the confluence of both the pandemic and this, you know, yet one additional evidence of a, of a police officer killing an unarmed black man um, emerged at, 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 a, at a particular moment in our history that was ripe for us paying more attention because we weren't so distracted by all the other things in life. You can't go to the movie theater. You can't go to the, you can't go to the play. You can't go to... Everybody this, was paused. Yeah. Focused oh. in on the news and tune into your social media more than even usual. And we're, we were all paying, we were all in it together. Andrea. We're all in it together. <laughs> this is true, right? We're all going... Ex- as a, as a country and now as a world, we're all going through similar things together. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So that, 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 that all of that then isn't, uh, isn't coincidental. 
it wasn't a coincidence that Black Lives Matter. So it was just orchestrated. Uh, I don't think that that horrible uh, uh, police officer, uh, when he did what he did to George Floyd, was thinking, you know, look at what I'm going to start here. Um, But I think, you know, give Black Lives Matter as an organization or as as a movement generally, even even the part of it that's sort of subsidiary, that's not part of the formal organization. it had been around for a while as a result of the, of, of other unarmed black men being killed by the hands of police officers. And they were ready for the moment. And I don't know that that's been talked about enough. It was, a, they were ready. And, and again, I don't mean as a formal organization, but I'm just meaning because they had the tag, which is more than a slogan, but it's also that it's, mm-hmm. it's a slogan, eight plus, right. It was there. It was ready. Um, our, our Even scheme, the, I just can't breathe slogan that was yeah, used before Garner. t-shirts were yeah. made. Is yeah. Eric Garner. Right. And, and so, we were ready, right? Our, our schemas were primed if we're going to use a cognitive psychology language, right? We, we had schemas in place to understand police brutality and understand racism, even if it wasn't in a very complicated way, so that when that video hits in that moment, you know, then we collectively get our schemas activated and, and we're ready to receive that message in a different way. And so that, you know, movements work that way. It feels like it's just like, but it's not. It's groundwork that is set. Activists doing work at the local level for years and years and years to raise awareness that when the moment comes, it can be seized to sort of really move toward progress. And that's, that's I think, how I see Black Lives Matter at this, at this moment. And do you see it as an opportunity now, as a, a greater opportunity while we have the attention and while we are all paying attention as a means to build greater and do more? Because right now, from where I look, and this is why I consult people like you, I'm thinking doom and gloom. We're doing it again. This is happening again. When will it stop? Will it ever stop? What can we do? Maybe we can do nothing. That's what those questions right. come through my mind. Yeah, sure. When you say this is a result of a grassroots movement that started years ago with organizers, simple organizers in local communities, um, addressing a need and a cause, and then slowly building momentum promoting awareness through the public, and then leveraging tools like technology, social media. And now this could be the opportunity to make traction on a larger scale. Is that what you see? Absolutely. And I have to be optimistic about that. I don't, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't know for sure. But I think that there are moments that, that we have to, I mean, I, you think about progress as maybe um, the metaphor is a ratchet, you know, or mm-hmm. sort of make progress, but then you got to go back a little and then you make progress. And um, I don't know if that that's the appropriate metaphor, but, um, you know, the attention to, to the issues ebb and flow. And, and when they're at their peak, you, you need to push a little further, right? And get a little further. So then it, when it slides back, it's not back to where you started, but it's just sliding a little bit further back. And um, I think if, if you're in, the, if you're an activist, you don't want any backslide. I mean, you want to just keep on moving forward. And that, that would be ideal um, to have better, more justice. I mean, this is what we're, I mean, this isn't like, it's not ideological in the sense that it's a policy sort of thing, Democrats and Republicans. It's sort of, you, we want more equality. We want more democracy with a small D. We want more justice, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of the, you know, the, you know, the arc of the, the universe bends toward justice sort of thing. And, and so, yeah, yeah I, I think that because we're paying attention, for me, and you'll remember this, I think, I hope from the classes that you had with me and the time we spent together, the, the idea of systemic racism is a complicated construct. And it's, it, it cuts against what uh, a lot of folks really understand racism to be, which is this individual level um, belief that people are, are, are good or bad based on their skin color. I mean, I think that's what most of us have been taught to understand about racism. But it's, and that's an easier thing to understand. Mm-hmm. It's easier to raise your children. You don't judge people by the color of their skin. And, and I think 
the vast majority of Americans over the last 50 years have done that, mm -hmm. tried to do that with their children. But, but, but it hasn't resulted in any demonstrable shifts in the positive toward equality or equity with respect to, you know, name any, whether it's uh, education or the healthcare system or, or the wealth gap. I mean, we can go on through um, all of it. Right. And because it's all related, that, right. that's the other part. That's a systemic part, but it's harder to explain. It's harder to understand. We have to have whole classes together, yeah. you know, before you can really grasp this. And, you know, I know that the joke about white people reading books at this moment is, is, is out there. And I think Sold out on Amazon. if all <laughs> you do is read books, but you got to read books. Yeah. You can't read, you're not going to find a 10 minute Ted talk. That's going to explain systemic racism to you. And you can't just be one book. It's got to be, have, there has to be a, a commitment to understanding. But that starts with a recognition that you don't understand fully. And I think most white people in America think they do understand racism and they've already dealt with it. They've already realized how not to be racist. So there's no more work to be done. Mm -hmm. So I think if anything positive comes out of this movement, it's going to be that white people in America understand there's so much more. There's so much more to racism than just interpersonal um, uh, treatment of, of people or, or even groups of people, that there are things that are built into the system that are very uncomfortable and that we're going to have to get serious uh, if we're going to change because people's beliefs and thoughts are constrained uh, by institutions and, mm -hmm. and by systems. And that's harder to see because it's invisible. It's pervasive. It's sort of this Gramscian notion of the hegemony, right? It's, it's so powerful and all-inclusive that we can't even identify. Fish don't know they're wet, right? That's, that's what we used to say. Uh, you know, they, they don't know because it's, that's all they've known. Um, and white people don't know they live in a, in, a, in a system of white supremacy because that's all, that's all we've known. So is, the, is one of the solutions there uh, bringing light to that system of white supremacy and getting more awareness um, out there in the form of education, scholarly books, and input from people like you? Is that the answer? Is more questions, more curiosity, more awareness? Yes. And I'm so glad that you said the word curiosity. You know, we had a chance a few years ago to rewrite North Central College's mission statement and we didn't dramatically rewrite it. I mean, for 159 years, we've been doing pretty much the same thing, educating people for uh, a life, uh, a, a complicated uh, existence. And, uh -huh. uh, but one of the things that we changed were, were some of the adjectives in our mission statement. And, and the first one we added was curious. So the first we want to have curious uh, graduates become curious. And if they don't come to us curious, we want them to be curious afterwards. There's so much to learn and um, about everything, but, but on this issue, since we're talking about uh, racism and, and racial justice, there's so much to learn. And it's a lifetime of learning. It's not like once I finish these things, this course, this seminar, this, th these five books that I bought from Amazon, you know, then yeah, they're all done. We're, we've completed our quota. I have my yeah. little statement that I'm going to read to people. Yes. Ask oh. me what I did. <laughs> all of it. Our corporation's going to say a thing. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's a it's forever. So, and I think if we can wrap our heads around that, is this is a process. It's going to take time, and it's never going to end. It's a quest for deeper understanding, um, because it took a it took many years to build a system like this, a careful construction by people who were not well-meaning. And so well-meaning people then have to deconstruct that system together, mm -hmm. but we can't just do it individually. We've got to do it sort of as a collective. So it really is about just making the, not just, I don't, the first step is the making first it. Step. Yeah, that's right. What can we do to, to connect more people and spur more awareness? Who are those main people that we need to get in touch with um, within our, the organization's that we work and live and play? And then what other ideas do you have to look forward and keep your optimism and, and work towards it? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think it has to be a long-term strategy. Um, I think what, 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 what worries me over the last month or so, last couple of months has been white people's um, desire to just seek out a black person and ask a bunch of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, in some ways that's sweet and in other ways that's horrible. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and I land on the horrible um, because- Can you explain why that's horrible? It's, it's burdensome. Yeah. It's burdensome. And, and I think that uh, people of color generally ought not be responsible for white people's education solely. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to learn from all of our brothers and sisters in what ways they come up. But it's offensive that, that you know, that you've had a friend or an acquaintance at work uh, who is not white for years um, and that you, you've, you've been friendly and had small talk and maybe had drinks together, maybe even been in each other's homes, but never really engaged in questions of social justice. And now that it's so pervasive, uh, to reach out and say, I, I need you to teach me, or I'd really like you to teach me about that. Um, it, it doesn't honor the fact that this person has lived their whole life in a system that is that, that, that fundamentally disadvantages them, even if they don't walk around the world as a disadvantaged person all the time, right? I mean, you could be middle class, right. and men are more privileged than women. I mean, we, we, we can talk about the intersectional nature of people's lived experiences. But to burden our black acquaintances. And, and I think we need to make a, di a differentiation between acquaintances and friends. I think if you really have black friends, you have had these conversations and, and that they're, those conversations have fundamentally changed the way you think about the world. But I think most of the time when white people say I have black friends, yeah. they don't really have black friends. They have black people that they know right. and are friendly with or whatever. That's not the same as a friend, right? right. I would say, you need that, I answered in the negative. You asked me what to do and I told you what not to do first. Which don't is just still burn, helpful. <laughs> it is, don't just burn your black friends. Um, but I think as the years go along, and this isn't so imminent, to, to continue to build relationships and to examine our own social networks. Uh, and I don't mean the, the ones on the computer. I mean our actual social networks. And ask those hard questions. If you don't have meaningful black friends, why is that? What is it about? Is it where you live? Is it where you work? Is it where your kids go to school? I mean, when you have small kids, so much of your friend network comes from your the parents. And your um, geography. Uh, where you, yeah, and then yeah, where you sports are. All of that, right. You know, I don't have to tell you about it. You know how it works, right? Yeah. Um, and, and to the extent that's integrated, um, then it, it can be meaningful if you choose it to be, but it may not be meaningful. I mean, you know, I've heard lots of stories uh, from white folks uh, in the last few weeks about, yeah, my kids went and their team was this percent, this race, and this percent. That doesn't, that's nothing meaningful about that. Now, it's better than not because there's at least exposure and that, that every um, uh, stereotype about people of color doesn't surface because there's counter stereotypes of the people that your kids play sport. So that's all better probably, but it's not the same as having meaningful interactions with people that are different than you. I think it's hard in small town America though. I mean, some of your listeners are, are not from uh, areas that have a high degree of diversity and they're, they're very homogeneous and that's hard. That's and very definitely hard. don't seek out that one black family in your small town. <laughs> Everybody's going to go, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that work done. Um, but, that, but it doesn't have to be interpersonal. It's the personal journey of understanding that can be done lots of ways through TED Talks and through readings and through engaging in, in different ways. And so we don't want to, I, I, I want to be careful to say we don't just rely on interpersonal people of color, but I think scholars of color ought to be relied on. So you, you very, um, um, I, I think graciously said, you know, people like me, and it is true that my research work, I've devoted my life to this uh, for the past 20 years, my career, and also my personal life. 
but I'm white. I mean, I'm Italian American. That's my, that's my background. And, um, I, I don't, I shouldn't be out in front at this moment. I'm happy to make whatever contributions I can. I'll never tell you no, if you invite me to come on your podcast. Yeah. Um, but I, I ought not be in front. Uh, there, right. there are so many black scholars, black writers, journalists who have been doing this for a very long time, who have important things to say, and we ought to be lifting up those voices and centering those voices at this moment. Mm-hmm. And, when it comes to centering those voices and trying to create more space and room, because right now it, it seems that there's only room for so many people, right? And mm-hmm. and you see people like a CEO, a founder of Reddit, who gave up his board seat. Right. And you see other people now following example, which was very inspiring. Like, wow, some one of the questions I asked was if there's an imbalance of power who are the people who are willing to kind of give up some of that for others? That's hard. That's a hard question to answer. And we see that some people are willing. Is that the trend that you see continuing? Is that what we need more of? Is that a good thing? I don't know. It's not a bad thing. I don't know that we need more of it. It's not going to solve things. I think it serves as a model and it, and it should inspire people to find what small thing. And I mean, I'm guessing the CEO of Reddit, we're, pro- we're, Reddit, we're probably not going to have to have a bake sale for him. Right, think, right. He could have made his own board yeah, position be able, and you know, go he didn't off have it. to leave. And because of all the PR he got from this, I'm sure he'll be very well sought out. That, that's not to criticize the move. And I'm certainly not, not being, um, I, I don't mean that, that, that it was anything other than altruistic, right. um, even though there are benefits to it. But I guess what I'm saying is power is zero sum. I mean, it's not like love, right? You can have more and more love and it doesn't detract from the original love that you had. You know, you can love, but, but, but power is not like that. And, right. and, and, um, and there's limited wealth. And, and so if we're really serious about reducing inequality of wealth, then that means some people have a lot of wealth ought to have less of it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know what I mean? Like that's all. And I, I don't mean that we're actually going to take it from their pockets, but I mean that we're going to have a system that allows more people to be lifted up and have a better standard of living, even if it means that some of the people at the very top have less than they had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to believe that that's an important goal, but I think it's, it's, it's foolish to sort of, or disingenuous to say, I want more inequality, but I don't want anybody uh, to lose anything. Right. That, I mean, because if the idea is that part of what they got was not was not fairly earned because it was as a result of a system that and I'm not talking about the wealthiest people, I'm talking about people like me, right? How did I get where I got? Uh, I want to believe that it was a hard work story by a first generation college student and all of that's true as well. But I don't know the times where I wasn't disadvantaged because of my skin. I don't know the times where I, you know, police looked the other way or nobody followed me around a store. Or I didn't get falsely accused of something or I didn't get turned down for a mortgage or I, I was welcome in the neighborhood that I chose to live in. All those things that are out of my control. I didn't ask for that. Um, I, was, I was bestowed this privilege because I was because I'm in a racist society where my skin tone advantages me. If, you- if I'm serious about disadvantaging, if I'm, if I'm serious about disassembling that, then I have to then accept that I may have some dis. I mean, not it won't be disadvantages. It's only disadvantages vis-a-vis the current system, mm-hmm. right? I have to be willing to have fewer advantages based on my skin color, right? And I think you're right. I think it's hard for people to accept that. How did you gain the capacity to look beyond yourself and your world, and then see where you are privileged and advantage, and how other people weren't, and still have an eye to want to do something about it? Yeah, I will tell you, um, I, it, it was, it's, it, there wasn't a moment. I wish there was a great story where it's like, and then it hit me. You know what I mean? That'd be better for your podcast. Yeah. Because then you could use that for your tech. Then, you know, he's going to tell be. a <laughs> There would be. Sorry, I'm not, I can't manufacture that. It was a, it was a slow uh, process throughout my life. 
um, that really um, was instigated by art. And, and this is one of the things I think as a Dean of Arts and Sciences that, that I, because I get, to, I get to experience and represent so many fields, it was through music. Um, and when I was a teenager, I was a punk rock kid. Uh, punk rock music is very political. And, uh, and I latched on very early to hip hop. And um, of course, you know that that's very political, particularly in those early iterations, was very political, socially aware. And so I think seeds were planted there about what inequality was, what power was, how government could be good or bad. Um, and I started, I, I didn't really give a lot of deep thought to it because I didn't have direction. It's just music. You know, you're going to a show or you're, you know, you're mm -hmm. skateboarding whatever you're doing. But then when I got through college, and it really in college, I mean, there were some professors who really pushed in this direction, but I went to college in the 80s and 90s. I won't say when I went to college. I went to college a little while ago. Um, and it was a different time. And there, and there were, I had really good professors who pushed me to think. Um, it was really when I got to graduate school that I think, and, and again, I credit, you know, people like Chuck D from Public Enemy and, I, and, and Tribe Called Quest. And I, and I, I think about uh, The Clash and, and some of these early bands that, that were so important. Um, I was ready to receive scholarly information now about these same dynamics that they were um, representing through their art form, mm -hmm. right? I was ready for that. Uh, and I get to graduate school and I start to struggle with some of these concepts. And then um, I meet my now 20-year co-author in, in the year 2000 at Princeton University while we're both there teaching in a summer program, Charlton McElwain, who's now the vice provost, uh, one of the vice provosts at New York University. And he and I have um, <clears throat> worked together on scholarship for 20 years, almost 20 years now. And um, through that work with him and starting to apply my political science training to questions of inequality, questions of racism in particular, and then if there was a defining moment for me uh, where it started to click in a more meaningful way, I think some people will be surprised to hear this because it was late. I was already sort of bought in theoretically, mm -hmm. but really when it started to get hammered home was in the last 10 years uh, when I started to, I was invited um, at one point by uh, David Wilson, who's a professor and a, and a dean at the University of Delaware, to come to a meeting at the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. So this is an organization that was started over 50 years ago because black political scientists weren't well incorporated or welcome in, in the major uh, mainstream uh, white uh, political science organizations, and they still continue to meet. And it's almost always black people that go there. There's some Latinos that go there too, but it's mostly black people. And uh, I was invited because of my scholarship to be on a panel. And I've gone almost every year since. Uh, and I just learned so much because the political science that I got in my PhD program, like most people, was not centered in the black experience, wasn't centered in otherness. It was centered in, you know, this sort of a sterile, clinical, uh, really statistical way of understanding government. And, and those tools are important. And, and black political scientists use them as well as any, anyone better in a lot of cases. But the stories that are being told and the experiences that are coming through, there's a saying because of NCOPES. NCOPES is the acronym, Black Conference of Political Scientists. And I think about that weekly, really, um, it, it sometimes daily, about how much I've learned from being a part of that community and being welcomed into that community as a learner, mm -hmm. even though I'm a part, a part of the, uh, the Black community. Um, and so that was, you know, that's only really been the last 10 years. And I, I tell you that way because I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. You know, what, el what other things are going to propel me to greater depth, greater understanding? Because I know there's so much more that I need to learn. This brings up a good point because in some of my discussions with, with peers, especially minority professionals, sometimes there's always that, am I here because I'm a minority? Am I a token? Is, yeah. is my merit based off of my, my intelligence or versus my skin color or versus my culture, demographic, background, upbringing? 
And sometimes there's that desire. I want to be known as a political science, not a black political scientist, or I want to be known as a good lawyer, not a black lawyer or a Mexican lawyer. Where's the line for that? And is, and I, I believe that those spaces are needed because it provides voice, it provides support, it provides learning and growth. To your point, it allows you a new experience to understand perspective. Um, but is there a drawback to that as well? Because if unless they enmesh with the other political sciences groups, how does that benefit other people outside? Well, I should say in terms of NCOPES, they do. Um, that The American Political Science Association has been very supportive of NCOPES uh, and, and has, uh, has tried very hard, at least in recent years, in the years that I've been involved, to, to, to have some meaningful relationships while supporting the organization or um, and, then, and then trying to partner in different ways. Uh, and I think that's important. Look, the truth is, Every political scientist who's black does not go to ENCOPES. It doesn't, and is not a member of ENCOPES, right? That's not. It's a different. It's it's a subset of folks, and it's. Um, but almost everybody who goes to that meeting and, and participates in that organization also goes to the mainstream political science meetings and publishes in those journals, et cetera, right? So there, it's 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 a space. It's a space for growth. It's a space to center black voices and um, and black scholarship. And for me, as a as an outsider. Um, I don't even know if I think that folks would bristle if, if I call myself an outsider because I think most of the people there don't feel like I'm an outsider. But I, I certainly started You're part that of way. The group. Yeah, I'm kind of. But, but I um, uh, it, it helped me understand what the black experience as a political scientist was because it was so different than mine. Uh, and I mean, as a discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Coming up through as a, as a as a as an academic discipline. I don't know that every uh, person who has a PhD in political science and who's black. Might, might say what you just suggested, which is that's not, I, I don't want to be a black political scientist. I want to be a political scientist. And uh, it's not that, that part's not that important to me. So I would never question uh, somebody's decision to do that. Uh, but, I, but I see tremendous value in the organization, uh, not only existing, but continuing to do the robust work that it does. Hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a journal uh, that the organization runs and, um, and, you know, it's full of really important stuff every, every quarter that it comes out that um, might not find an appropriate placement in, in some of the white, you know, traditionally, historically white uh, political science outlets. Where I think where I'm coming from this is that from my perspective, it's in a, this could be perception, right? This could just be my, my, my own personal thing. There's always that question. If I'm getting a recognition or if I'm from even if I'm branding myself, do I brand myself as Latina? Do I brand myself as minority? Because you don't want to be pinged in that role. And and what I don't want is to be seen as less than solely because of of my color. And that's what I think sometimes. Yeah, I understand. I guess what I would say is in my experience, and it's a white experience, it's a limited experience, but as a, in leadership, um, I... I in my experience, people of color in America succeed despite their skin tone, not because of it. White people tend to succeed it because of their skin tone, but not people of color. In other words, I can understand, I hear you from your perspective that you have questioned, but I also think that you think that sometimes because there's a dominant narrative that people of color are only succeeding because of affirmative action and quotas yeah. and and so forth. And I think that um, it's, it's really, that was, that's carefully designed uh, to 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 have people not disrupt systems of inequality. That narrative is carefully designed for that purpose. And if you can get people of color to buy into that too and question their own worth as a result, there's a lot of utility in that if what you seek to do is reinforce and perpetuate that 
system that's, that's problematic. Because from what I can tell, and, and, and my co-author Charlton is black. And, and so when we go and give speeches together and we, we talk, I have said publicly that I have to credit my skin with part of the reason that I'm standing up there as a professor and, and giving a speech and that he has done it in spite of his, that he has overcome mm-hmm. a system that, that it was designed to keep him in a certain place and he's overcome that. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you're a person of color and have, have achieved some success, um, it, it seems problematic for me to, to, to have that, to, to question that. Certainly nobody else should question it, but it's, it, 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 I understand why somebody would, but I think it's because of this dominant narrative that was very carefully constructed. What are those other dominant narratives that are intentional that keep um, the systemic uh, oppression going? Yeah, I think um, they all have a common theme of entitlement uh, and worth and and uh, value. I mean, I think you think back to the, the welfare queen stereotype that, that emerged in 1976 during Ronald Reagan's first um, run for president, where he, you know, welfare um, to that point had been seen as an important social safety net. It, it like it does now, it overwhelmingly uh, benefited whites. Uh, just because there's more white people than there is anybody else in the country, just there are way more white people on welfare. That's always been the case, right? Um, but for people who didn't think there should be a social safety net, for people who thought work harder, uh, do more, you know, you shouldn't have, we shouldn't have social safety nets. One good way to get public opinion, largely white public opinion, because again, that's the, that, that was especially in the 1970s, the vast majority of America was white, uh, not so much anymore, of course. Um, to get them against it, one of the, what do you do? You racialize it. And so when he tells the story uh, about Linda Taylor, uh, who was from the south side of Chicago, and she was a welfare chief and did, did all these things, he was effectively then painting welfare. He, he, got, he allowed white people to believe that this is what black people do. This is what welfare is. It's a way yeah. to cheat hardworking white Americans from their tax money so that they can be lazy. And, and it's in the, in the, we see these common themes of, you know, people of color, black people in particular, um, feeling like they deserve more than they work for, right? It's not just laziness. That's there too. The black people are lazy. That's a stereotype. But it's not, it's not just that they're lazy. Uh, the stereotype is that they're lazy and they expect other people to take care of them. They, they, are, they feel entitled yeah. to that. And so, I mean, you, you know, you, you've been there uh, in classes with students. Every student, when you start to talk about um, food stamps or WIC or whatever, tell some story about being behind somebody in line at the supermarket, buying a bunch of junk food for their kids, mm-hmm. you know, which is like, we really need our poor people not to have their kids happy. Like, is that really what we need in life? That's really mm-hmm. more, you shouldn't get a candy bar if you're poor. Um, because it's like, that's my tax money. And they're buying junk food with it. I mean, they, and, and, and the narrative there isn't just about the money. It's those people can't be trusted. You're going right. to give them, you're going to spend it because they can't be trusted. They don't deserve it. And they're, and, and so. And isn't that narrative on the other side too, Right. I can't, we don't trust the government. We don't trust the people in charge. We don't trust, no one can be trusted. Nobody can be trusted except me, you know what I mean? (laughs) Right. My family. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I think that there's, that that distrust of government um, also stems from that wave in the the early 1980s, right? I mean, Ronald Reagan famously said government is the problem. Um, Well, you can only believe that if you don't want government to interrupt how things are going, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, things are going well for you. Of course, you don't want government interrupting it. So, if you have white skin and, and even if you're not, remember privilege is a, is a comparative thing. It's not absolute. Lots of poor white people, lots of poor white people, right? Mm-hmm. But they can see themselves not being poor, right? Because there are people who have succeeded who look like them, right? Lots of people, right? Mm-hmm. All the time. And they also have the common enemy of the person of color, 
right? The, yeah. the real problem in society. And so you, you can latch on to that government's the problem narrative if you believe that if government just stays out of the way. Look, this is country music. This is country music, right? What it's all about country music. music. Yeah, but things are so terrible, but God bless America. Oh. Because if things are terrible, it's not the country's fault they're terrible. I just got to work a little harder. Or I just had some bad break. The blues isn't like that. You know what I mean? The blues is a very different kind of how things are, are bad, right? Because it's a black art form, right? It's an inherently Tupac's black. Tupac's not like that. <laughs> and Tupac's not like that. Tupac's going to tell you why things are bad. He sees it in a very different way. But yeah. uh, the country music artists are not going to, you know, for the most part, uh, we know the chicks now. Maybe you saw the news that Dixie Chicks dropped Dixie from their name. I saw that. I saw now that. They're just chicks. And of course, they, you know, for, for a long time, 20 years now, have been uh, system critical and uh, were really banished uh, from, uh, you know, from their fan base uh, early on when they criticized the Iraq war as a result of that. And so, you know, this, it's this love it or leave it. And there can't be anything wrong with America. The kid, mm-hmm. You know, and, and that connects to this notion of what patriotism really means, where for a lot of people, it's just nationalism. That's the love it or leave it. Mike, don't criticize my country. Right. Where for many, patriotism is, is like raising children. You know, if you love it, you put it in line sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean, you know what I mean? I don't, yeah, you <laughs> just make sure it works for the people in it. <laughs> yeah, but you don't, you don't just say, you know, eh, if you touch a stove, you touch a stove. You don't, you say, no, don't touch that stove, right? right. I love you. And that's not the right thing to do. You shouldn't be doing that. Don't wail on your sister anymore or whatever. So we can criticize and love, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a country as well as interpersonally. But I think that's... Uh, I think that's what we have have a hard time doing now as a people is being able to criticize and love and still listen and accept because I think the art of debate is something that's been lost. Being able to hear another perspective based off of the critical points, even if it's controversial, and an attempt to believe that it's true without immediately... Uh, dismissing. Yeah. We don't have yeah. a lot of that. No, we don't. We don't. And I, and, and I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. I think our fractured news media is, mm-hmm. is you know, and when I grew up, there were three there were three news stations, really, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And, and you watch the news at any given night, they're pretty much the same stories on any of them. It didn't make a difference which one. There wasn't a liberal one and a conservative. They were just news, right? Mm-hmm. They just told the news and they pretty much told all the same stories. Uh, and now that we have the um, we have cable and proliferation of news networks, then they find a niche audience. And I think as a result, um, you know, we gravitate. To, I'm as guilty as anybody, by the way. I'm not holding yeah. myself. Oh, same here. <laughs> I don't let it be made uncomfortable, you know. With, um, and so, you, you know, when you're constantly having your own beliefs reinforced, it's hard to believe that anybody reasonable could think anything different than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that is that's really problematic. And that's not the, that's not a Fox News only problem. That's an MSNBC problem uh, just as well. And so, it, but it's but it, we only have. So many hours in the day to consume our news. And I think it's a lot to, I mean, I have to, I got to watch Fox News and MSNBC and, and local news because I'm a political scientist and it's my it's part of my job of what I'm supposed to do. But people working two shifts, trying to raise kids, taking care of parents, you, you don't have time to say, well, you know, honey, I'd like to play with you, but uh, I, I only, I've only watched the conservative news so far. I need to go watch the liberal news for half an hour. That's a lot to expect from folks. So what are your advice? What, what do you recommend for people who want to just get more of an objective news source? Uh, are there any stations that you recommend? Any, any other thought leaders um, among yourself as one of them that you would recommend they tune into to get more of this information that's not so polarized towards a specific audience? 
it's hard these days to find. I think the better solution probably is to just mix it up. And you don't have to mix it up in the example I just gave, which is spend 30 minutes watching different news, but at least on your social media. You know, if you have Twitter, subscribe to the conservative and some progressive uh, outlets and, and try to see w- what's happening and click on some links in all of them, even if it's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. I think it's helpful to know because I think one of the things that was so upsetting for progressives in 2016 was the belief that they really were shocked by suburban white women in particular who voted disproportionately for Trump. Like, I didn't know that, you know what I mean? Like what happened? We knew, well, one of the reasons you don't know is you're not paying attention to what's going on here. You're not paying attention to how the message is received, how the messages are interpreted and and, and proliferate in in, in different circles. And so as a result, you're going to be surprised. Um, And we probably shouldn't have been so surprised. I mean, surprised that it's Donald Trump just because he's kind of a character. You know what I mean? Like he's not, he, he doesn't come from government, he doesn't have government experience with a talk show, you know, a television person and, and, and say what you want about him just in terms of interpersonally. He's a little bit, you know, he's not curious, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know how that's controversial. I heard his press secretary today, you know, saying that he's well, you know, he's well informed. I mean, it's been clear from several sources that he doesn't read those daily briefings that he gets uh, because he just, he's not interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, in fairness, I think he's not interested because he didn't expect he was going to be there. <laughs> I don't think, you know, he wasn't, the, we weren't all the only ones who were surprised when he won. I think he was surprised when he won, uh, too. And, he, and I don't know that he really wanted the job that much other than he, you know, he had felt like he had something to prove. So, you know, I think if we can expose ourselves to as much information as possible, uh, even if some of it is, is upsetting, uh, it's, it's, it's all for the best. And, and um, there, there are, I think there are efficient ways to do that without using tons of time. And then I know we're, we're wrapping up now, but before you leave, what are your thoughts on this upcoming election cycle? What can we do? What should we be looking out for in terms of, of how the candidates are presenting themselves, which parties? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, it's um, in any time there's a, somebody running for re-election, it's inevitable that the election becomes a referendum on that person or on that administration, right? I mean, this is really less about Joe Biden than it is about whether you want Trump to serve four more years or you don't want Trump to serve four more years. Right. And so if, if you're if you like the president, there's probably nothing that any information is going to come across your desk that's going to change your mind. We're pretty dug in. And, you know, the, for a long time, we thought it was the independent voters that mattered. I think they matter a little bit, but remember, there's only a few states that really make a difference in a presidential election, and, and our state, Illinois, is not one of them. It's not going to matter who people vote for here, really. So doesn't uh, that disengage some people? Yeah. Doesn't it kind of, mm, yeah. what is my point? What yeah, I the think? electoral college is a problem. We, we, I mean, you had me on for another hour. We could talk I about know, we should do that. Problem. It's a problem for that reason. Um, But in some ways, it's also freeing because I think if people want to make statements, vote for somebody who's more progressive than Joe Biden or more conservative or or less conservative than Donald Trump, um, there may be options, uh, you know, for third party candidates. And you don't feel like you're wasting your vote in a state that you know is going to to go in one direction. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you wouldn't want to do that in Pennsylvania or in Ohio or in Wisconsin. But in Illinois, it's, it's probably safe. You know, if, if you're a Trump supporter, your state's not going for Trump anyway, so vote for who you really love. Uh, I think there are, there are ways to do that. And people who are upset with Joe Biden, safe to do in California, safe to do in a place like Illinois. But, but, I, but I also think it's going to be a weird election uh, with, the, with, the, with the pandemic, I mean. I mean, I have since 2000, I've attended most presidential election years. I go to both the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. What is it like? It's awesome. Oh my God. Have me back and talk about that. It's awesome. They're awesome. It's just, I, I recommend everybody, if you get it, even if you don't get a credential to get inside, just being in the city on the street, because all the news organizations just set up in the middle of the street and they broadcast live and you can stand there and watch them. And there's just, 
I say famous people, this is geeky political science famous people, you know, <laughs> members of Congress, senators, but also news people just walking around the streets and uh, interacting with people. I mean, it's just an amazing atmosphere. So um, I don't know if the Democratic National Convention is going to end up happening in, in Milwaukee. It's scheduled for Milwaukee at the end of July. But that's, a, you know, for, for Chicago people, it's not far. We're planning to go up even though I won't be working the convention. But my guess is they won't have it. The Republicans will probably, uh, maybe they won't, but they don't, they don't seem as concerned about social distancing, um, you know, as a party, as mm-hmm. the Democrats do. And so it's not just the convention, so it's campaigning. No rallies, won't be a lot of door-to-door canvassing. I mean, some of the staples of a campaign season uh, aren't going to be here. Much right. more electronics, reliance on social media, which mail-in we Mail-in ballots. Will be prob- and now mail-in ballots, right? You don't even have that community of going to your, to your voting booth with people. So it'll be different. I don't know how it'll affect turnout rates. Um, uh, we, we should talk at some point about the mail-in ballots because I think it's a, it's a, it's a good, safe alternative, but Republicans are already weaponizing that as well, suggesting mm-hmm. that there's widespread voter fraud. I don't know why they believe it's only going to be in one direction if there's voter fraud. That's I mean, there was voter fraud last election. I mean, the voter fraud, it, whatever it is, it's never in the direction of the people accusing it. I mean, it, almost, it almost never is. Um, but I, I worry a little bit that, there, that, that we might have somebody in the White House who doesn't want to leave if he loses. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's not happened. And, uh, and, and did an argument that it was rigged or that it wasn't fair and lawsuits and some weird, I don't know. I mean, nothing's normal. Nothing's mm-hmm. normal. And, I, and I, um, I've been concerned for a long time that he's sort of setting up rhetorically uh, a loss to be fake. You know, everything, everything he doesn't like or is against him is fake, right? And so to, if elect- stay in, elect, uh, to stay in, in term. I don't know that he could stay for another. I mean, you know, in in you know, in in less developed countries, the military removes you from. Your, I hope that we don't get to the point where we have to ask the military to go to the White House and remove him if he loses the election. But I think there will be. But lawsuits. He, would, he would counter it, right? He would. I think so. Yeah, I think we're through lawsuits, and you know, we saw that in two thousand with the contested election. Yeah, you're a little young to remember, but in Florida, he has contested election. Um, but uh, at the end of it, uh, the loser said, I lost, okay? And I, I may be upset about how it went, and maybe I don't even believe, but I'm not going to go try to move into the White House because I feel like I won. It's like, that's the way it goes. So um, you fight, you fight in courts, but I'm, and, and all that's fine in the abstract, but I guess what I'm saying now is I'm worried because he seems to be setting it up now, mm-hmm. setting up you know, for people to believe that if Joe Biden wins, he can only do so if he cheats. Right, because that creates doubt. Really, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. The same way that he sort of for three years has gone after the news media and now people don't believe anything that the media says unless it's their mm-hmm. media. And now um, tech companies going after Yes, this. and now tech companies, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, there's so much. This was really nice. Yes, thank you. Know? you. Thank you so yeah. much. I would love to have you on for future topics. Um, I'm happy to come back. This was thank fun. You. I appreciate you. And I look forward to to uh, watching your webinar series at North Central College. It's going to be great. Yeah, tune in. It's northcentralcollege.edu slash webinar hyphen series. Uh, you can Google it too. I think it'll come up and there's there's 18 different presentations. The first one uh, launched this week and then they're going to go the whole way through the summer. North Central College faculty talking about all different facets of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. They will also be archived there. So even if you can't join live for the question and answer session, uh, they will be available on the website. Were you on one of the, I don't, I don't remember seeing your name on one of No, them. I just organized that. I thought, oh, you, don't, you're, uh, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is the Dean role now. You are the organizer. Right. 
Yeah, it's my party. I'm inviting people today. No, I didn't. I didn't do one. Um, the, yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about it to be honest. I didn't think. Uh, you know, uh, um, two of our political scientists. Uh, Dr. Chad and Dr. Muck ha have one that they're going to do later in the summer. It'll be fantastic. Um, I didn't think I had anything particularly unique to offer, but I, I do offer some words of introduction in, in the video that precedes the question and answer to try to contextualize what we're, what we're doing at the college. And Got it. I'm very proud of everybody. I did see Kavanaugh. I, I'm so interested in that one. And then also with uh, Professor Broadhead. I'm yes. Awesome. A lot of your, and this is what I keep telling people. It's like some of your favorite professors are yeah. giving these talks. You can't wait. And, can't and for, wait. Alum, for alumni, it's great, but also for current students who just miss their professors over the summer. You know right. what I mean? You want yeah. to say, oh, I can't wait to take class. Oh, I don't have to wait because I can at least do a half hour of this webinar on this stuff because this happens. And I think we'll probably continue this is that in the summer, students think, oh, I wish I had class right now. I wish I was in class, because I'd love to know a professor no, about this. No, no, you know no. I mean? <laughs> it's now. Yeah, no, you always I wish I had homework. I wish I had exams. I know how students think, right? Uh, but they do wish that they had the, 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 the moment to have discussion about yeah. events that happen when they're not in class. Yeah. So they, they I can't miss... tell how, how many alumni have written back and said, I wish I was in your class right now. Like, totally. this moment. I wish I was in your class right now so we could do this together. And this is just a short, I mean, it, this doesn't completely scratch that itch. But it's mm -hmm. a short version of you get a little fix of your favorite professor talking about the things that they know best. Yes, I love it. I cannot wait to watch it. So thank you. And then to your point, you said uh, there was there's a topic. You wrote a book, uh, The Inequality in Race, um, Race, Poverty, and Fulfilling America's Democracy. Yeah, Inequality in America, right. Yeah, the third edition will be out sometime next year. It, you Really, I should have been done with it. I missed my deadline, because, partly because of the pandemic, partly because I was just behind on my deadline. And then I talked to my editor and thought, you know, there's so much inequality baked into this pandemic. You know, Black Americans are dying at a much higher rate than others uh, mm -hmm. from, who, who contract COVID. Uh, and then, of course, the presidential election. And we just decided, let's wait until November, finish writing then. So it'll come out a little later than I had hoped. It won't be available for fall classes for people to adopt. Um, but sometime next year, you can look for the third edition of Inequality in America from Rutledge. Well, I look forward um, to future conversations. Thank you so Thank much. You. Have Thank a good one. So Great to see you. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comments section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.